Join me, if you, if you will, in your Bibles with Matthew chap- in Matthew chapter 10. I've got a cold, and it's affecting everything that I am doing today, thinking and speaking. Matthew chapter 10, and we'll be in verses 24 through 42. And a couple weeks ago, we went through sort of part one of, uh, of Matthew chapter 10. This is the second extended discourse or, or speech, teaching time, from Jesus in the book of Matthew. There are five of those. Uh, And this one is all sort of centered around Jesus sending his disciples. So we saw at the end of Matthew chapter 9 in verses uh, 35 through 38, right? That passage which ends with Jesus saying uh, to the disciples, Look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send more workers into the harvest. And then two weeks ago, when we looked at the first half of Matthew chapter 10, we saw Jesus telling those that he had just asked to pray for more workers in the harvest to be workers in the harvest, right? So we saw that praying for the harvest always leads to people going to the harvest. And if you don't want to go into the harvest, don't pray for the harvest. If you don't pray for the harvest, there's something wrong with you. So pray for the harvest that God may send you into it. And we saw even there that as Jesus sends, that he sends people even into danger, into persecution. And that that for the Christian is normal. That that we would expect to be opposed for our faith in this world uh, is normal. And if we don't, for a period of time, receive that uh, uh, oppression or persecution or opposition to the gospel, we are blessed by God and we ought to leverage that freedom, that liberty, uh, even more so for the gospel. And we saw in verses 24 and 25 where Jesus says, A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? We saw that to follow Jesus is to be like Jesus, even in and into persecution. Because we're not better than Jesus, and we're not to expect better treatment from the world than Jesus did. He himself then, in the rest of Matthew chapter 10, outlines the kind of mindset, the kind of thinking that we've got to have that will be necessary for enduring persecution and hardship for the gospel. Okay, This may not be the uh, uplifting, exciting Thanksgiving Day sermon that you were looking for. But, but I think it will be uh, uplifting and encouraging. Maybe not exciting, but certainly encouraging as we read God's word together this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verses 24 through 42. Jesus says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father, who is in heaven. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. As Jesus gives us this mindset for enduring persecution, I think he does this in three different ways. We'll pray that that doesn't happen again. This is in three different ways. First, he says to us, do not fear. Verses 26 through 33. Do not fear. Why? First, in verses 26 and 7, 26 and 27, he says, because all truth will be made known. Do not fear because all truth will be made known. Jesus says here, have no fear of them. That is, those who malign the household of Jesus from verse 25. Have no fear of them because nothing's covered that will not be revealed. Ultimately, this statement points to this, points the disciples to a day when all that is true will be revealed. Right? This is a subtle pointing to that final day of judgment when all things in the earth, in history, will be brought to light and seen for what they truly are. Truth will be seen for truth, and that which is false will be seen for being false. And to this point in Jesus' ministry, much of what he's taught his disciples has been in a sort of a private environment, or at least somewhat smaller. Not, not huge. Now, on the Sermon on the Mount, he's preaching to a lot of people. Uh, But still, it's not a a global sort of ministry yet. Some of his teachings have even been sort of veiled in parables. But Jesus says that because the truth will not be veiled much longer, the disciples are to proclaim the truth boldly and publicly for all to hear. In this, there's great confidence in, in the disciples knowing that they know the truth, right? If you know that you know the truth, you can endure false accusations for a period of time knowing that the truth will be revealed. Right? If you are falsely accused of a, of a crime or some misdeed and you're going through a, 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 a trial for that accusation, if you know that you did not commit that thing, you can endure the trial knowing that the truth will be revealed in the process of it. Right? And so the same is true here. We can endure, the disciples can endure and not fear the world knowing that Jesus is the true Messiah, that he is coming back, and that all that is true will be made known the end of time. So do not fear because all truth will be made known. Secondly, do not fear because God who loves you can be trusted. God who loves you can be trusted. Verses 28 through 31. In verse 28, we have kind of a strange statement from Jesus. And maybe some of you in reading it, um, you know, cocked your head a little bit sideways and, you know, squinted an eye to make sure you're reading the words correctly. Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What is Jesus talking about? Who are we fearing and who are we not fearing? Well, certainly, you know, he says, do not fear man, right? Do not fear those who can kill your body. But do fear that one, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Who's Jesus talking about? Some people think he's talking about Satan. Satan can destroy both body and soul in hell. That's not true, though. Satan doesn't have authority in hell to destroy body and soul. Satan isn't the one that sends non-believers to hell to be punished for eternity. It is God who created hell for Satan and all those who do not profess faith in Christ. So who are we to fear? God. Fear God. And so in this statement, Jesus gives us a clear contrast between fearing God and fearing man. 
He says, don't fear man, fear God. If I could put it just as simply as that. What is the fear of man? Think here, it's just being afraid of those that can kill your body, right? Being afraid of those that can end your physical life. But Jesus says the fear of persecutors, the fear of of those who can kill the body is foolish because they can only kill the body, not your soul. To destroy the body is not to destroy the person. Friend, you here today are not just your body. Your your life is more than your body. There is and exists in you an immortal soul that will live forever beyond the death of this physical body. And so the fear of the one who can only kill the physical body is ultimately a foolish fear. Because they can't kill you entirely. Instead, Jesus says, fear God. Maybe you're thinking this word fear doesn't really mean what it sounds like. Maybe fear just means like reverent awe, worship God. Fear man, but worship God. And in some sense, that's true. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying we should take a posture of trembling in the presence of God. We should have an attitude of acquiescence, of giving into God's will in our life. The fear of God is far more productive than the fear of man. Because whereas man can only kill the body, God has authority to destroy both body and soul in hell. Here, Jesus is giving a clear teaching, clear statement on the permanence of punishment in hell. In that place, both body and soul of the unbeliever, the one not trusting in Jesus for salvation, are punished by God for the sin of that individual. Only God has authority to and the ability to send someone to hell. Not Satan, not man. Only God. And though man can kill the body, God is able to raise it up from death. We know the promise of that. He raises Jesus from the dead. But when, a God, commit, when God commits a soul to hell, there's nothing that any man can do to retrieve it. So then to fear man is to treat God with contempt, to place oneself at odds with God. But to fear God, to tremble in the presence of God, is to align yourself with the will and the desire of the one who has authority to destroy both body and soul. Yes, but also with the one who has authority to raise body and soul from the dead. So fear God. We fear him, though, not because he's scary. And a lot of people think, oh, I fear God because, well, he's scary. This, this God can send somebody to, to hell for all eternity. That's a scary thing. Well, the, the prospect of spending eternity in hell is scary, but the God who does it is not. We don't fear God because he's scary. We fear him because he loves us and because he can be trusted. And so in verses 29 through 31, then, Jesus highlights the goodness of God's sovereignty in juxtaposition with the fear of God. You know what the word juxtaposition means, right? It's two, two things that seem opposite in, in, in stark contrast to one another, but put on display next to one another to show how well they actually go together, right? God's sovereignty, his goodness, his justice, and God's goodness, all right there. Fear of God and his goodness, just interplaying very well together. It is good then for us to fear God, not merely because he holds the keys to eternal punishment, but because this God is morally good. And loving. We fear him because he loves us. And because we know that he loves us, he can be trusted with the most important things like our daily provision and even the care of our souls. Right? Jesus says in verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. This reminds us of what Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? 
Hear then even more from the book of Proverbs what the fear of the Lord looks like. It's not a trembling. It's not a scared kind of fear. And it's not a fear that, that leads to negative results, but one that leads to positive results. Now, now, this concept of the fear of the Lord is all over the Old Testament, okay? But I just went to Proverbs this week to give you several examples. Proverbs 2, verse 7. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 10, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. 19, verse 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And then Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. What's the picture of the fear of the Lord just from Proverbs? That it doesn't lead to harm, that it doesn't lead to calamity, but it leads to life and to safety. So fear the Lord. Fear him and enjoy the safety that comes with that, knowing that he loves you and, and can be trusted. Fearing God is a good thing. It leads to our knowledge of his care for us. And it ushers us into the kind of abundant spiritual life and even the kind of worship that we're designed to have and to display and to practice. In this fear of God, which leads to life, we, we then grow to despise fear of the world and fear of man. We can despise fear of man for the fear of God, knowing that finally Jesus will not, or Jesus will, excuse me, vouch for the faithful. Verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Here we see this sort of uh, a progression of concepts or ideas that link together in this, passion, in this passage. First, God's love, right? Knowing God's love leads to fear of God. And fear of God leads to despising our persecutors. And despising persecutors leads to confidently confessing Christ as Lord. And confidently confessing Christ as Lord leads to identification by Christ as one who is righteous in his name and because of him. In the face of persecution, church, it is and will be difficult to remain faithful. It will be difficult to remain faithful in persecution. The temptation is to fear man. Right? To deny Christ and to save our necks. But the call to Christ, the call of Christ is to fear God, to confess Jesus, and to lose our physical lives for the gaining of an eternal one in the new heavens and the new earth, in the presence of Christ. And so then, to have a mindset for enduring suffering and persecution as a believer, we must first exchange fear of man for fear of God. Right? Get rid of fear. Stop fearing people who can only kill your body and fear God who has control over your eternal destiny. Two individuals in the 20th century had a lot to say about fear. One of them, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, at his, uh, his inauguration as president, said the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And then a very small individual, uh, green with large ears, Grandmaster Jedi Yoda said, fear 
is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. And many people have put a lot of stock in these two statements about fear. I know that, you know, like Yoda, right? Fear leads to evil. Or like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The only, there, is no th- there is nothing to fear but fear. So don't fear anything. But church, both of these opinions, both of these positions are wrong. FDR was wrong because there is something other than fear itself to fear. God. Jesus says as much. Fear of God, though, is not meant to drive us to cowering and and shuddering and trepidation in this world. Rather, fear of God who loves us and who can be trusted with our provision leads us to despise the fear of men and confidently proclaim the gospel even in the face of suffering and all the more in times of ease. Because we know God and we know that he cares for us. We know that we can be trusted with our souls. We can proclaim the gospel in suffering and all the more when there is not suffering. But Yoda was wrong. Should just leave it at that. Yoda was wrong in that fear is not necessarily the path to evil. Well, we see that in, in what Jesus is saying, that fearing God does not lead to evil. Fear of man does lead to uncertainty. You're afraid of what somebody else can do to you. You're uncertain of, of, of what they will do to you. And so in fearing man and being uncertain of man, we tend to acquiesce to man. We do what other people want us to do or tell us to do. Acquiescence to man leads to idolatry, holding man above God in terms of authority in our lives. And, and doing that leads to just punishment from God. But fear of God, church, leads to love for his goodness. Love for God's goodness leads to confident confession of Christ. And confident confession of Christ is the way to salvation. The only thing to fear is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But he loves you and he is good. So fear him, trust him, know him that you might be saved. Secondly, first, we, in, in terms of creating a mindset for enduring persecution, we do not fear man. We fear God. Secondly, we take up our cross. Verses 34 through 39. We take up our cross knowing that first division over Jesus, division because of Jesus is normal. It's normal. Verses 34 through 37. Jesus talks about families being divided because some in the family trust him, believe him, follow him, and others in the family do not. And there's division over that. The fact that the gospel is divisive has been a common theme in the book of Matthew already. This is not the first time that we've talked about it or seen it. The gospel requires us to choose between law and grace. It requires us to choose between the narrow road of faith and the wide road of popularity. The gospel forces us to choose between being loved by the world or being maligned, being hated by the world. And here Jesus requires his disciples to choose between being loved by family and being known by Christ. To choose between being loved, between loving family first or following him first. With Jesus, there's always a decision to make. And there will always be a sacrifice that goes along with that. We see in these verses just another reminder that Jesus is a divisive figure. Not that he himself comes waging war and and intentionally trying to cause division. But simply that to align yourself with Jesus is to align yourself against the world and those who deny him. To say, I trust in Jesus, who says I'm a sinner that needs saving, is to say, I don't agree with the fact that some people believe that they don't have sin and they don't need saving. Right? There's division there. In verse 35, there's just Jesus talking about division in family members. He's quoting Micah chapter 7, verse 6. 
to describe the kind of betrayal that will occur for the faithful, for those that faithfully follow Jesus. Now, in Micah's day, Old Testament prophet, he was lamenting at that time the condition of the repentant remnant of Jews. So there's a small population of Jews who were repentant of their sins, but the majority of the Jews in Israel were not. Okay, they're practicing idolatry and profaning the, the name of the Lord and all of those things. And so Micah is lamenting the condition of the repentant remnant of Jews who remain faithful to Yahweh in the midst of Israel's societal and, and, and faithful de- or, or, or decay of faith. There, in Micah, the intent was to show that faithfulness to the Lord brings contempt for the unfaithful. Right? If you are faithful to the Lord, those who are not faithful will show contempt toward you. They will not like you. They will be divided. But the import and the the intent of Jesus' words are not altogether different from what Micah was saying. Indeed, as the disciples were themselves Jews and being sent to the Jews first, as we saw a couple weeks ago earlier in Matthew chapter 10, Micah's prophecy would be filled anew in the disciples' own lives as the gospel of kingdom uh, gospel as the gospel of the kingdom advances. So here you have disciples following Jesus who are Jews going to other Jews with the gospel of the kingdom. And Jesus says, they will cast you out and hate you, even like what Micah said about the faithful remnant of Jews in Israel who were hated by their, by their, their contemporaries. This sword, the sword that Jesus comes bearing in verse 34, the sword will cut between even the closest of the relationships. It'll cut between family and household. Nevertheless, Christ's call to complete devotion remains true. It holds fast. Love of Christ, above all else, is the chief distinguishing mark of the true believer. And if you are and claim to be a true believer in Jesus, faithfulness to Christ trumps everything. And so we take up our cross, knowing that division about over Jesus is normal. But also we take up our cross, knowing that life is more than mere flesh and bones. Verses 38 and 39, Jesus says this, whoever does not... Take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To take up a cross, and Jesus to use this phrase, is a very clear indication of death, right? Crosses were not ornamental fixtures 2,000 years ago. Crosses were instruments of torture and execution. Crucifixion was widely known at the time as a Roman specialty in execution, if you will. It was the ultimate picture of humiliation in death as convicted criminals were hung naked on a cross in front of tens, if not hundreds of people watching them die. Jesus' words here to take up the cross for a disciple are as stark as saying, whoever does not sit in his own electric chair, whoever does not tie his own noose around his neck, whoever does not blindfold himself before the firing squad is not worthy of me. This is not a call or a command to go and kill yourself, okay? Jesus is not condoning suicide. But he's saying, he is saying that, that the kind of life of following Jesus is self-sacrificial. In one sense, in saying this, Jesus is already pointing to his own death, right? He will also be crucified. That much is certain. But he also seems to be speaking in these extreme terms to illustrate the totality of faith and self-sacrifice and trust in God that is required of the believer. Then in verse 39, Jesus says, right, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here, life and death are even not what they seem. A paradox is at play here in this verse. The one who seeks life will lose it, but the one who loses life will find it. What is that all about, Jesus? That doesn't make any sense. Well, in the first half of each of these clauses, the finding and losing of life refers to physical life. So the one who 
finds his physical life will lose it. And whoever loses his physical life for my sake will find it. And the second half of those clauses refers to losing or finding spiritual life. So let's read that again, but with a slightly different emphasis, right? Whoever finds his physical life will lose his spiritual life. And whoever loses his physical life for my sake will find his spiritual life. To seek physical life over eternal life will only set a man against God, right? Seeking the the good of your body, this physical body, will set you against God. Fearing for the security of that which is temporary over that which is eternal. But holding loosely to your physical life for the sake of confessing Christ, even though it might lead to death, will result in being found securely in the saving grasp of God. At the end of the day, church, which one is better? To be secure in this life and insecure in eternity, or to be insecure in this life or, and to be secure in eternity? Certainly the latter. We need to see also this, though, church, that the life of a disciple is not a, it's not a frolic through flowered meadows, okay? This isn't Bambi before his mom gets shot, right? That's not, lo- that's not the life of the Christian. It's not, it's not tag in the forest, okay? It's not hide and seek in the meadow. The life of a follower of Jesus is, as Jesus says himself, a slow march to eventual death. Death to self. Death to sin. Death to the desires of this world. Death at the hands of loved ones. Death for association with Christ. Death for the proclamation of the gospel. But the death of a follower of Jesus in all these ways ultimately results, always results in the firmest assurance of a life that will never end. And so to endure persecution, we endure it not fearing, without fear of the world, because we know that this life, which the world can't take, is more than just flesh and bones. So then, church, we must not waffle in our devotion to Christ. We don't flip-flop in our devotion to Christ, but we stand firmly on the truths of His Word and the promises that He gives to us here in this passage. Here I'm not speaking specifically about standing on particular and specific points of doctrine, although I'm not minimizing that either. Right? It is important to know and to believe and hold fast to sound doctrine. But here what I mean to say is that we stand firmly on the promises of Christ's word here. That to follow him is to know that we are intentionally walking into a life that will manifest. It will create clear divisions because the gospel divides. And also that we can walk this walk. We can live this life following Christ in confidence knowing that true life is bound up in more than just our physical bodies. True life has to do with where we spend eternity. There will be a day in which all people will be raised from the dead and where soul and body are reunited. Scripture promises this much in 2 Corinthians 4 and in Revelation 20. Those who in this life were united by faith to Christ will be raised to spend infinite years with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promise of Scripture. Your physical body will be raised from the dead. Your soul and your, uh, your physical body reunited in a glorified state, in a sinless state for all eternity, spend in the presence of the King. That's a great promise. But those who have not placed their full faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins in this life will be raised, body and soul, joined together again to spend eternity in a real physical hell separated from Christ, separated from the presence of God's grace and mercy. This place is where God's judgment is perfected, where his wrath is justly and perfectly displayed. Because the division between those who believe the gospel and who do not believe the gospel, because there's a division that exists in eternity over the gospel, 
We can expect and should expect and should know that there will be division in this life over the gospel as well. But friends, we are able to endure this division, this persecution, this oppression. We're even able to thrive in the midst of it because we are able to finally look forward to the reward. To look forward to the reward. Verses 40 through 42, Jesus says, Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Here in verse 40, we see that to receive the message is to receive the king. To receive the message is to receive the king. Jesus states plainly that to receive or to accept a gospel messenger, a disciple carrying the gospel, was to accept Jesus himself and through Jesus, God the Father. To receive here, that word receive, means to welcome, to accept, to host an individual in a spirit of generous hospitality and care. So to receive the messenger of the gospel, to receive a disciple as he's proclaiming the gospel, is to receive the gospel itself, to believe it, to know it, to hold it as true in your heart. That is why Jesus can say that such a reception is to receive Jesus himself and through Jesus, the Father who sent him. Put another way, believing and applying the message of the king, the gospel, is to believe and obey the king himself. And so to receive the message is to receive the king. But secondly, to receive the king is to receive eternal life. Jesus in these verses, in verses 41 through 42, is not saying that mere hospitality to a disciple or a missionary is what gains eternal life. Okay, we, we know that Jesus has said in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that merely calling on the name of the Lord and doing things in his name is not the same as receiving the Lord or the Father who has sent him. Remember, Jesus there says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. We know that merely doing things in the name of Jesus is not the same as trusting Jesus. And so hospitality, just mere hospitality to a gospel messenger is not the same as receiving salvation. So then here, reception, receiving this gospel messenger, this prophet, this righteous man. Reception means more than just hospitality. It's more than just tolerating a gospel message. It's more than just appreciating the gospel message as like, oh, that's a great thing. I'm glad that that works for you. How encouraging. Jesus must be indicating that persons who receive the message of the messenger, who who believe and accept the gospel itself, and thus that receive the message and person of the authoritative sender, right? So you receive the gospel, you receive the message, you're also receiving the one who sends it, will in turn receive the reward of the messenger. Church, here Jesus is describing what happens when non-believers hear the gospel, when non-believers believe the gospel and extend brotherly affection and hospitality to gospel messengers. Jesus is describing what happens here in conversion, when somebody is born again, when someone hears the gospel and believes it and is saved. Because of their reception of the message and for their generosity to those who bear the message, who come bringing the gospel, they are rewarded with the same reward as the prophet, the same reward as the righteous person. The one who believes just by merely believing receives the same reward as these 12 disciples that Jesus is sending out. 
they're rewarded with eternal life. Along with these disciples, along with the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of missionaries who have taken the gospel around the world in Christian history. They are united in faith to Christ and saved from their sin in the same way that you and I and every Tom, Dick, and Harry is saved from their sins by just placing faith in Christ. So then, Christian, set your eyes on eternity in the midst of affliction, in the midst of persecution. Set your eyes on eternity for perseverance in the mission. As you pray for the harvest and God sends you into the harvest, look forward to the end. Look forward to the reward to endure. But non-Christian friend, you who are here this morning that don't yet by faith in Christ know God the Father, haven't yet been made right with God, your creator, your king, who desires to, who, who does love you and desires for you to be in a relationship of worship and love with him. You who do not yet know Christ this way and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins. See today and know that God wants to give you the reward of eternal life if only you will trust Christ with all your life. That's all you have to do, friend. That's all you have to do. It's not about what you can do for you or what you can do to impress God. It's not about being having more good works than bad works, which, by the way, I mean, where's the balance? How do you know how many good works is enough good works? It's not about proving yourself better than other Christians. It's not about ticking boxes on, you know, for church attendance and, and giving to churches and charities and things like that. It's about the one that you know. Do you know Christ? Do you trust Christ non-believing friend today. You, you are among friends. We love you. We care for you. We want you to know the most important thing in the world is that you know Christ and know salvation today. Don't leave here today not knowing him. Find somebody, a brother, sister next to you, someone, someone sitting in the same row. Ask them how you can know Christ today. And we just finished uh, the Olympics earlier this summer. And, uh, and like all people, who watch the Olympics, enjoy, you know, watching the races. The, the, usually the second week of the Summer Olympics is all track and field stuff. We see these people training, spending years of their life to run a race one time in the Olympics. And not to run just for the sake of running, but to run for the joy of finishing. To run for the joy of crossing the finish line, receiving a medal, being acknowledged for their achievement. This is the same sort of thing that it drives all high-achieving athletes, professional athletes. It's what drives scholars to get to the finish line of writing a dissertation. It's what drives uh, motivated businessmen and businesswomen, right, to build successful businesses, getting to a, a point of saying, I, bu- I built that, I finished that, I did that. It's what drives parents to be good parents, right, to, to recognize those moments, even as my wife and I were talking this morning, where you, you have a parenting moment, and then five minutes later, you realize, I, pro- I could have done that better, right, right, what drives us to parent better is to see our children grow, right, in, in growing in maturity, and certainly as believing parents, to see them grow in their faith in Christ, and to nurture that, running for the, running for the, the end, running for the finish line is the, is the motivation to run, if you like to run just for the sake of running and not for finishing the run, there's something else wrong with you. But we could talk about that another time. But for the believer, listen, for us who believe and who trust in Christ, we don't receive a prize, we don't receive a medal for our efforts. It's not because of the race that we run that we receive a prize at the end of this life. It's because of what Christ has done for us. In trusting Him, we have endurance in this life to run this race with reckless abandon for the King who has saved us.
Because the prize is certain. The, the reward is secure. We know that it's coming. This is why Paul can say near the end of his life, before he faces execution for his preaching the gospel of Christ, he can say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, he writes, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. He's speaking of his own death here. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Verse 8, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Not also to all who have run like me, just ever so faithfully, planting all these churches, right? Sharing the gospel with all these non-believers. Not to everyone like me who, is, who knows the Bible so well and teaches it so eloquently, right? No, Paul says the prize is laid up not only for me, but also for all who have loved Christ's appearing. The reward is not wait, awaiting all of those who work hard to prove themselves worthy. Non-Christian, you need to hear that today. The prize of eternal life, of salvation, everlasting life in the presence of God who created you and who loves you is not built, is not waiting for you based on what you have done to prove yourself worthy to God. It's not. It's laid up and held secure instead for all who have loved Christ, who have trusted him and who are joyfully, expectantly waiting to see him again and to celebrate on that day. Church, we can endure persecution and oppression and hardship for our faith on mission with the gospel because this is the reward that we have to look forward to. We can run the race with endurance knowing what awaits us. That eternal life which awaits us has been purchased for us by Jesus, by Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who stepped out of heaven, right, gave up his, his right to a divine sort of lifestyle and took on flesh, becoming fully uh, man and yet fully God. And he lived a perfect life, a sinless life without rebellion and complete trust and dependence upon the Father that none of us has ever lived or ever can live on our own or in our own strength. Jesus did it for you. Not only did he do that, but he went to the cross and he died there for your sins and for mine. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus shed his blood that your sins might be forgiven and mine. And he was raised again from the dead three days later that all who trust in him would also be raised from the dead to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a great promise of scripture. That is the gospel message. Friend, if you don't know Christ this way, if you're not trusting him for your salvation this way today, don't let today go by without doing it. But right now, church, we together get to celebrate with thankfulness what Christ has done for us. We get to share this morning what we call the Lord's Supper. Right? As Jesus, on the night before he died, gave to his disciples bread to eat and a cup to drink, he said, this bread is my body broken for you. This cup is my, the blood of the new covenant right? shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So church, this morning, we get to remember Christ together and celebrate Christ together, his death, but also his resurrection. And what awaits us as we trust in Christ for our salvation, for the forgiveness of our sins. I'm going to pray, and as I do so, the deacons are going to come forward, and, uh, and then they're going to help us to distribute uh, the, the elements this morning. It's a little bit different. There's, uh, as the plate comes by, you'll see that there are two cups, sort of one nested inside the other. And the bottom cup is the little bread, and the top cup is the, is the juice. And so just take a little stack of two cups uh, as the plate comes by, and hold that, and we'll take it all together.
I want you to know that this meal is a, is a meal for believers, okay? This is only for those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for their salvation. And so if that's not you today, if you're not trusting in Jesus today for salvation, don't take this because you'd be taking it wrongly and saying something about yourself that is not true. Right? Parents, help us with your children, your children who may really want to take the Lord's Supper today but haven't publicly professed faith in Christ. Um, help them to know that this is not for them yet, okay? And disciple your children in this way. We're going to serve from the back rows to the front, and Danny and the praise team are going to lead us in a time of singing as we receive our elements. Hold your elements. We'll take them all together when we all come together. Let me pray, and you prepare your hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning.